The poet Mary Oliver once wrote a little essay about her practice of walking the harbor beach down in Provincetown where she lived, of just going there, she said, simply to notice things. Not because she felt like walking the beach at low tide she would find anything particularly useful, but rather because it fed her soul. And I would be strong-souled, she wrote. I would be strong-souled the better to honor this world and my little voyage through it. I hope that being part of this faith community helps you to be strong-souled. That coming here feeds your spirit and your soul, offers you hope and consolation when you need it, and stirs up in you passion and vitality also. When I think about it, I sometimes like to imagine us as like a gym for the soul, helping us to strengthen those spiritual muscles so that we are strong-souled for the living of these days. And it's needed, right? We are needed in these days. Strong-souled for yourself and for those you are journeying with and for our world. So we are, as a Passover Haggadah says, helping to heal and not to harm, to bless and not to curse. Though, let's tell the truth. Some harmless cursing can be helpful sometimes, right? Just saying. We just sang about giving praise and thanks for all that is our life. And just on Thursday coming up, we have our yearly ritual of thanksgiving. And it's all about gathering to give thanks for the harvest and our blessings and enjoying these symbolic foods of the harvest. And this is a good and lovely thing that we do. And I wonder, how many of us around the table will give thanks for, as we just sang, for all that is our life? How many of us around the table will, as we just sang, give thanks for sorrows we must bear? for failures, pain, and loss, for each new thing we learn, for fearful hours that pass. We come with praise and thanks. I don't know if it would even occur to me around the Thanksgiving table to give thanks for my sorrow, my failures, my pain, my loss, right? Most of us, we're naturally more inclined to complain, maybe even whine a bit about our afflictions, right? I am not immune to that. You could ask my wife. But the person who wrote these words, they are calling us to take a wider and longer view, I believe. 
to just accept the fact that suffering and grief and struggle, they are part of human life. To live into these difficulties as best we can. To ask for help and find companions who we can not only celebrate with, but that we can also commiserate with and laugh with along the way. Reverend Serene Jones is a theologian and seminary dean who I've just found recently through the modern wonder of podcasts. And she said something in a recording that I listened to recently that has really helped to clarify for me what this journey of grief and mourning can be about. She talks about the transition making your way from being in a state of grief to a place of mourning, which she describes as moving, she says, from a place of sheer loss to a place of acknowledging the loss. And in mourning the permanence of the loss, she says, it can't be fixed. It also creates a space in the mourning for you to make sacred the pain. So the rest of your life is transformed by it. It allows the possibility of a future mourning does. Do you know what she's talking about? When any of us experience a traumatic loss, it knocks us over, right? It pushes us down to the ground where we are naturally immobilized for a time. Maybe that's our body and our soul's way of just cluster, you know, holding in, gathering in, and like not being able to do anything, just surviving. But what Serene Jones says is that the process of mourning begins when we start getting back up. When you acknowledge that you've suffered a loss that's never going to be fixed. And this hard and necessary truth-telling, that starts to open up a space within you where you can start to do something with your pain. It may be tiny, and some of you can talk more from direct experience about this than I can. It may be a tiny opening, but there is a shift, I believe that eventually can allow you, if you work with it, to make that pain even sacred. For me, this is a new way of describing the process of mourning, and it feels liberating for me to think of it in this way, finding depth and meaning in the pain, coming to see the loss that you never would have sought out as an invitation an opportunity to take it and work with it and in the fullness of time to make something sacred out of it. Whether we would describe it this way or not, haven't many of us done this already in our lives, learned from our losses and been transformed by them? As that song from the show Wicked puts it, because I knew you, I have been changed for good. Haven't the losses of our lives made many of us into what 
the theologian Henry Nouwen called wounded healers. Wounded healers. My friend Cheryl St. Ange is a photographer. She lives in Durham, New Hampshire. And our children are about the same age. And when I first met Cheryl, I would hire her to assist me on photo shoots back when I was a photographer. And our kids were little back then. And Cheryl would go with me. I'd usually pick her up at her home and we would drive to the job and she would help by carrying gear and setting up lights and helping problem solve these assignments that I'd gotten. And one day I picked her up and we were in the car driving somewhere and she laughed and she said, you know, it's so great to be able to leave the kids with my mom and get out of the house for a whole day and have some adult conversation for a change and get paid for it. I loved going on these jobs with Cheryl because the joke was she always knew somebody somewhere or knew somebody who knew somebody. She was one of those connectors. And she was always like, oh, I know your brother-in-law and haven't you? Anyway, Cheryl mostly works with a large format camera, one of those old ones, you know, that you put on a tripod and it has bellows and a plate in the front for lens and a plate in the back for the film. But not just any one of those. I used to own one of those, those four by five inch sheets of film. Cheryl uses an eight by 10 camera, which is a beast. And she still uses film mostly, though she does sometimes work with her iPhone. But with this camera, it is by necessity a slow and deliberate and patient process of making photographs. And Cheryl, she surpassed me in photography long ago. She was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship back in 2009. But more recently, and this is why I'm telling you about her today, she found herself using her photography as a way to mourn. Listen to how she describes what happened. My mother and I have lived side by side on the same farm for decades. Our love was mutual and constant. Then she developed vascular dementia. And so began the flushing away of her emotions and her memory. At first, I stopped making pictures with her. Then I stopped for a while making pictures at all. Perhaps as a counterbalance to her conversations of why she wanted to die, of how she imagined she could die. And because I needed some happiness, some light in the afternoon, these portraits of my mother began made in the moment as a distraction from watching her fade away. I would make a picture of her and then share that picture of her with others that I love. Sharing the act of being in the moment, sharing the ephemeral nature of my looking and her seeing. Now when I leave our home, when I leave my mother behind, people find me. They want to tell me their stories and they want to hear mine. It's a beautiful back and forth, much like a true portrait. Because of the dementia, my mother and I have no conversations anymore, but we do still have this profound exchange, the making of a portrait. She must recall our history and the process of picture making because she brightens up 
and is always up for what my children would refer to as the long effort with the big camera. That best describes sitting before an 8x10 view camera on top of a tripod with its bellows extended out. My mother does her best and I do mine. And then in turn, I give the picture away to anyone who will look. It is an excruciating form of emotional currency. Cheryl's mom, Carol, died three years ago. But their story and these photographs they made together, they endure. They've been published in the New Yorker magazine and also in the New York Times. And if you want to see them, I'll put a link with the sermon text on the website. But you know, you don't have to be a professional artist to practice the art of mourning. You don't. You have what you need already. You have your heart and your soul and your mind. You have your pain and your loss and your memories. How might you make a practice or a project of honoring the losses in your life? How might you make sacred the pain, your pain, so that the rest of your life might be transformed by it? I wonder what media you could use for your art of mourning. You know, it could be anything. It could be music, live or recorded. It could be ink on paper, like I like to do writing in a journal, but it could be drawing. It could be photographs or paints or cut-out images made into a collage. Maybe something made of wood or clay or stone. Maybe it's a tree or a garden planted in memory of one you've lost. Or a symbol placed where it will remind you of that person you could not live without or that blessing. It might be as simple as starting with a candle that you light here on an average Sunday morning. It could be a new way you commit yourself to living in the world. Holding open a space for mourning. Helping to make sacred the pain. This is one of the things we know how to do here, right? And that we do pretty well. We have rituals here for remembering the dead and for caring for the living. We do this with words and with song, with hugs and condolence notes, and with food, with lots of food. I am something of a traditionalist. I don't know if you've noticed. I love those old funeral hymns, Amazing Grace, Abide With Me, For All the Saints, O God, Our Help in Ages Past, which is based on Psalm 90, O God, Our Help in Ages Past is, which was our reading this morning. For me, these old words and these old tunes, they provide 
an anchor of comfort and solace in our often topsy-turvy world. Of course, there's contemporary poetry that's just as good as any scripture. And there are some good new songs too, like Blue Boat Home, which we sing a lot here, which is adapted from a traditional hymn tune. And we could use more of that adaptation and that innovation, couldn't we? There is this communal part of mourning a death, and there is an art to that. But as many of you know, the hard work, the real work begins when the service is over and the rest of your life lies before you. And this is the time when you really need companions. Whatever you might be mourning, you need a community, don't you? My friend Cheryl only started photographing again after several of her artist friends encouraged her to take up her camera and start photographing her mother. You need a community and you have one here. And we're not the only one, of course. I trust you have other communities and circles of connection as well. The invitation, my spiritual companions, is to take up practices that will help us to be strong-souled. To start to see ourselves as the theologians and the artists of our lives. Engaging with life as it is, being grateful as best we can for it all. Taking up the time-honored work and practice and art of mourning, making sacred the pain, remembering that we are not alone, that we are in this together, trusting that grace does abide, now and forever. Amen.